Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're in chapter 18 of our group learning program, which is titled God's Creative Action. You have free will. This is a chapter devoted to helping you understand more about this being that we call God and helping you to understand how to attain enlightenment or liberation of the mind, either with a relationship with God, if that's what you choose to do, or without a relationship with God. Because during Gautama Buddha's lifetime, he taught about God or gods. It's a really big myth that he actually denied the existence of God. You will see some people that will say this, but when you look at his actual teachings in the Pali Canon, what you'll see is you'll see his teachings about God and helping people to understand this being, but more importantly, focusing their practice and their learning on their own individual learning, developing their own wisdom, but helping them to understand this being God. So that's what I plan to do today is share with you what Gautama Buddha taught to a very minimal detail in this program and other program that we have, the Pali Canon and English program. We go into a lot more detail throughout the entire program of all the Buddhist teachings, but there's one book particularly where a lot of the Buddhist teachings related to God are in that book in volume 11 titled The Realms of Existence. But in this class, what we're really going to focus on is helping you to understand this being God and how you can progress on the path to enlightenment in order to liberate your mind and attain this enlightened mental state where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. As we go through today's class, just like always, I'm going to open up for questions and give you guys a chance to ask questions. And the way that you would do that is just put your comments into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. The moderators will see that and make sure your question gets asked during the class. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions that way. So thank you all for joining. Let's go ahead and move right into what I have to share with you guys and then helping you guys learn about what we refer to as God. Now, this topic of God, depending on where you've learned, what community you're part of, what country you're part of, what environment you've been part of, what community you've been part of, different people have different things that they teach about this being called God. Well, what I'm going to share with you today, we need to kind of come to some common understanding of what I'm talking about when I refer to God. Because in order for us to have this conversation or this discussion about how to liberate the mind, 
while either having a relationship with God or no relationship with God, it's important to kind of lay some foundation and get some definitions of what we're really talking about here. So you might not necessarily agree with what I'm saying, but at least there's a commonality or you understand the perspective that I'm coming from and what I'm sharing with you today. When I use the word God, what I'm referring to is the creator of the universe, the source of all moral authority, the supreme being in this whole cycle of rebirth. God is the supreme being. You might have referred to or heard people refer to this being as God or Allah or other various names. And we typically attribute an all-knowing, all-powerful qualities to this being or omniscient or omnipotent. That's all-knowing or all-powerful. So this being, whenever you hear me refer to God, that's what I'm referring to is this being. And I will typically use the male gender of he because when I think about God and when I the experiences that I've had with God, I experience a lot of masculine energy with this being. And even the Buddha himself, when he talked about the gender of various beings, he talked about God being a male gender. Well, you don't necessarily need to adopt that same understanding, but just understand that I will use the gender he sometimes when I refer to God. And that's just based on my own experience. And if you refer to God as a she or no gender whatsoever, that's completely your decision. But this is how I will refer to God and thinking of God in these terms and sometimes using the gender of he. When you see me share this definition of God as being the source of all moral authority, then the next question becomes, well, what is you know morality or what is moral conduct? So I share that definition with you here that moral conduct or virtuous behavior is holding and manifesting high principles of proper conduct, the way that we conduct ourselves on a day-to-day -day basis. So what you're going to hear me talk about in this discussion is the natural law of gamma, of course, because that's really the foundation of everything that leads to enlightenment. But this natural law of gamma functions around this moral conduct. So not killing or not stealing, not having sexual misconduct, not lying, not taking substances that cause heedlessness. This is all what was created, in my view, through this entity uh, that we refer to as God. Okay, And it's important to understand in everything that we talk about and as we go into today's discussion that we all have free will, that God isn't a being that is controlling us or treating us like robots or forcing us to do one thing or another. God isn't giving out punishment and rewards. That's not what God does. As we talk further, I'm going to give you more understanding of God, but just understand that everything that we're going to talk about today is based on the truth that we all have free will. There's nobody that can force us to make any particular decisions, including God himself. And there's no predetermined life. It's not like we're born into this world and then God has decided what we are to do in this world. And now everything that we do is to try to fulfill God's wishes or try to fulfill this predetermined life that God has created for us or that we might be 
pleasing God or everything that we're doing is to please God. This is not the way that would lead to liberation of the mind if you think that way and if you've been taught that way. It's important to understand that you have complete free will and everything that you do, every decision that you make, you're not a robot and there's no entity on this earth and there's no entity or being like God that is going to be able to control your decisions. All your decisions are up to you to make and those decisions that you make are based on your wisdom and what it is that you would like to choose to do. Not in order to please God or not in order to fulfill some predetermined life that we may think that we may have. Instead, it's about bringing the mind into the present moment, using our wisdom and making wholesome choices in the present moment. It's important to understand that God doesn't grant enlightenment. He's not the one who's deciding who gets enlightened and who doesn't. In fact, it's our own choices, our own wholesome choices of learning and practicing these teachings to train the mind that leads to us attaining enlightenment or not. God doesn't determine that for us. We have complete ability through this free will to make choices, to learn, to gain this wisdom, to make wholesome choices, to do things like meditation and practice the teachings of the five precepts, practice the Eightfold Path and all the other teachings. Those are all our choices. God's not making those choices for us. As we discuss this free will, it's helpful to understand some of the overall teachings that the Buddha has related to the teachings of God. Just kind of as a capsulation of what the Buddha actually taught, let me share this with you that Gautama Buddha never denied the existence of God. There's places that will teach you that there's no God in Buddhism or that the Buddha denied the existence of God. This is just someone who isn't understanding and hasn't been exposed to what the Buddha actually taught on this topic. In fact, in today's class, I'm going to share one little teaching that the Buddha gave about God, and there's lots of others that he gave as well. But his goal wasn't to prove or disprove God's existence. That's not what the Buddha decided to base his teachings on. He instead focused people's minds on how to attain enlightenment while still understanding God, if they chose. Because during the lifetime of Gautama Buddha, there was belief in many, many, many different gods. Gautama Buddha didn't come in and try to either prove or disprove that these gods existed. Instead, what you're ultimately going to hear me talk about today is that the Buddha taught to not be attached to God because it's not God that's giving you enlightenment. It's not God that's punishing or rewarding you. It's your own individual decisions. So he focused people's minds. Gautama Buddha did. He focused people's minds on learning and practicing to gain this wisdom because it's through our own decisions that we actually attain enlightenment. The various beliefs that people had during Gautama Buddha's lifetime, they weren't quite sure how these teachings of gods related to what the Buddha was teaching. There was Brahmin who were priests during that lifetime, and they were teaching about all these different gods, and people had to pay these priests in order to pray on their behalf because they were taught that the common person wasn't able to pray to God, that they instead 
had to pay these certain cast of people that were responsible for praying on people's behalf. But this didn't really go so well. And there was a lot of corruption there and people could see that the things that they were doing weren't actually leading to any necessarily beneficial results. So when Gautama Buddha came in to share his teachings, he wasn't trying to prove or disprove that God existed. Instead, what he did is he just helped people to understand this wisdom that he had and then how to relate to these various beings, not just God, but other beings as well that exist throughout the cycle of rebirth. The path to enlightenment is not based on belief. As I share throughout all the resources that I share and all the classes that I share, it's based on independently verifiable truth so that you can acquire wisdom. The understanding of God for some people requires a certain amount of belief unless you've experienced certain things where God might make himself known to you in certain ways. So it's important that you don't believe anything as part of this path, but instead you learn and you practice so that you can independently verify the truth to acquire wisdom. And this is one of the reasons why Gautama Buddha didn't try to either prove or disprove God's existence because he couldn't prove God's existence because there's nothing tangible that he could share that someone could go off and independently verify and determine that God exists. He also didn't have anything tangible that he could share that someone could go off and independently verify that God doesn't exist either. So what Gautama Buddha's teachings focus on that lead to liberation and lead to this wisdom is what are the teachings that you can independently verify in order to gain this wisdom and lead to liberation of the mind. So that's what he actually focused on, is sharing truth that could be independently verified to acquire wisdom. Through focusing the practitioner's mind on establishing right view, through the Four Noble Truths, understanding what causes discontentedness is craving, desire, attachment, and we cause that ourselves. so therefore we can eliminate it ourselves through the Eightfold Path, establishing right view, a practitioner understands that the condition of their mind is what's producing discontentedness. That's establishing right view through accepting responsibility for our own decisions and the condition of our mind. Through helping practitioners establish right view and understanding the natural law of gamma, then practitioners can gain wisdom of things that they can see in the here and now in the present moment and understand that their enlightenment is not based on God's creative activity. That the actions of God or whatever God decides to do or not do is not affecting your ability to attain enlightenment. Just like your neighbor next door to you, if they chose to paint their house pink or green or yellow, that doesn't affect your ability to attain enlightenment. So any decisions that God chooses to make doesn't affect our ability to improve our life because we have free will. And God isn't the one who's going to punish us or reward us for anything that we end up doing in this life. And this next part is where Gautama Buddha really kind of hones in on free will and helping you understand free will very clearly. He delivers this teaching after he's gone and talked 
with some other monks or aesthetics and also some Brahmin who were a priest because during the lifetime of Gautama Buddha, he was teaching and sharing teachings with students who were dedicated to learning with him. But there were also other teachers in the region that had claimed that it was their teachings that led to enlightenment. So all these various aesthetics or people who had entered homelessness and were looking to attain enlightenment, they were in the various regions that the Buddha moved in and out of. And so were these priests. All of these people were in one way or another sharing their teachings and in one way or another claiming that it was their teachings that lead to enlightenment. So the Buddha would interact with these various people at different times in a very respectful way and he would understand the things that they were sharing and some of those people would ultimately come and learn with him and start to understand his teachings. So there was kind of a, a community of aesthetics who were all learning with different teachers, but they would kind of congregate and spend time together and kind of share what they were learning with each other, along with these Brahmin priests. So the Buddha in this particular teaching, he goes and approaches these aesthetics. And I'll read this to you. It's titled, All is Caused by God's Creative Action. Then monks, I approach those aesthetic and Brahmin who hold such a doctrine in view as this. Whatever this person experiences, whether pleasure, pain, or neither pain nor pleasure, here he's talking about discontentedness, that whatever this person experiences, all that is caused by God's creative activity. And I said to them, is it true that you venerable ones hold such a doctrine in view? So do you guys hold such a doctrine in view that everything that you're experiencing in your mind is caused by God's creative activity. When I ask them this, they affirm it. Then I said to them, in such a case, is it due to God's creative activity that you might destroy life, take what is not given, indulge in sexual activity, speak falsehood, produce argumentative speech, speak harshly, indulge in idle chatter, that you might be full of longing, have a mind of ill will, and hold wrong view. So there he talks about the five precepts, essentially. He walks through the five precepts and he says, is it because of God that you're doing these things, that you're destroying life, that you're stealing, that you're having sexual activity, that you're lying, that you're being argumentative and having harsh speech and idle chatter. And then he goes into saying, in full of longing, which is craving, desire, attachment, in a mind of ill will, that's anger, hatred, and ill will, and hold wrong view. This is ignorance or unknowing of true reality. So he goes through the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots. And he says, is it because of God that your mind has all of these things and that you make these decisions to conduct your life in this way? And then the Buddha says, those who fall back on God's creative activity as the essential truth have no desire to do what should be done and to avoid doing what should not be done, nor do they make an effort in this respect. So if it's because of God that all of these things are happening in our life, that we choose to kill, that we choose to steal, have sexual misconduct, speak in harmful ways, 
that we have craving, desire, attachment. We have this anger, hatred, ill will, this ignorance, delusion, unknowing of true reality. If we believe and we think that it's because of God that all these things are happening, then the Buddha is saying, then we have no desire, no interest to do what should be done or to avoid doing what should not be done. We don't have an interest to make an effort to improve our life. Since they do not apprehend as true and valid anything that should be done or should not be done, they are muddle-minded. Okay, this is the mind being confused, right? It's lacking clarity because the mind doesn't understand what you should be doing as wholesome activities and what you shouldn't be doing in terms of unwholesome activities and practicing in a way that brings clarity to the mind. So the Buddha says, because these people don't understand what's true and valid, they're muddle-minded, they're confused. That they do not guard themselves. They don't guard the six doorways to discontentedness, which we talk about in our Pali Canon in English program, where discontentedness comes in through the senses, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the mouth, the bodily contact, and the mind. And even the personal designation aesthetic could not be legitimately applied to them because an aesthetic is someone who's seeking the truth. They're given up the household life. They've moved into homelessness. They're living on the donations of the people and they're seeking the truth and they're seeking this wisdom to lead to enlightenment. So the Buddha says, if somebody's falling back that it's all God's fault, that all of these things are happening, then we can't even really legitimately refer to them as an aesthetic because they're not truly seeking the truth because they're relying and claiming that it's God that all these things are happening. Because if it's God's fault or if it's God's decisions or God's creative actions that are creating all that we're experiencing, then that means we have to train God to do things better. It's all God's fault, right? And what the Buddha is saying is, no, 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 this is something that we need to focus on. We need to focus on improving our life through gaining wisdom, through gaining understanding and practice in a better way. So let's go in this a bit further and talk about Gautama Buddha's undeclared teachings. He taught a lot of things during his life. And then during his life, he also shared things that he didn't teach. And in one of his similes, he shared the things that he declared as teachings, and he shared the things that he didn't declare, making it very clear that he didn't teach these things. The things that he did declare are the Four Noble Truths. He declared what causes discontentedness in the mind so that we would understand discontentedness, the cause of discontentedness, the elimination of discontentedness, in the path leading to the complete elimination of discontentedness in the mind. So he declared that as his teachings. That was the real cornerstone of establishing right view, which is the Four Noble Truths. But then he left these things as undeclared, ensuring that people know that he did not teach these things. And you can read through this list. It's in the book in chapter 18. But what I would like to really hone in on for you are teachings about the soul because oftentimes 
in communities where teachings about God are being shared, we're taught that there's this soul, right? The concept of a soul conflicts with Gautama Buddha's teachings. So he didn't teach that a soul exists or a soul doesn't exist. He just left it as an undeclared teaching. Because the concept of a soul is that there's this kind of intangible, non-physical entity that's part of a human being that moves from existence to existence as like a permanent entity or a permanent soul. So because of the teachings of impermanence, the Buddha never taught the concept of a soul. And also because of the teaching of the universal truth of non-self, he also didn't teach a soul because it conflicts with the universal truth of impermanence and the universal truth of non-self. So he left this as an undeclared teaching. He didn't say that there is a soul and he didn't say that there isn't a soul. He just left it as undeclared. The other thing that you can see here that he left as undeclared is any kind of afterlife. If you don't attain enlightenment in this life, we know that a being is going to be reborn in the cycle of rebirth through the five realms of existence of hell, animal realm, afflicted spirits, human realm, and the heavenly realm. And then long as we haven't acquired the wisdom to attain enlightenment, we're going to be reborn into new existences. When we say rebirth, really there's nothing that's actually being reborn. It's actually a new existence every single time. It's more like the cycle of new existence. There's this cycle of new existence where if you don't attain enlightenment, you're going to continue to be reborn in this cycle until the mind acquires the wisdom that it needs to attain liberation or enlightenment. But once you attain enlightenment and then die, we might call this the afterlife. The Buddha never taught if there is an afterlife or there isn't an afterlife. And that's what he's sharing here where he says, after death, the Tathagata exists. After death, the Tathagata does not exist. After death, the Tathagata both exists and does not exist. After death, the Tathagata neither exists nor does not exist. So a Tathagata is a Buddha. It's one who's discovered the truth. But a Buddha is essentially an enlightened being who meets certain criteria to be declared as a Buddha. So we can really insert the word enlightened being in for Tathagata. What he's saying is he's leaving undeclared that after death, an enlightened being either exists, an enlightened being does not exist, an enlightened being either exists or does not exist, or an enlightened being neither exists nor does not exist. We know that an enlightened being is not going to be reborn in the cycle of rebirth. There is no existence in the cycle of rebirth. But the Buddha never said that there's no existence whatsoever after one attains enlightenment and dies. This is another misunderstanding that you'll see in some Buddhist communities. People say if you attain enlightenment and you die, then you will no longer exist after that. But you can see in the Buddha's own words, if you look in the book that I share in volume one, as well as some of the other volumes of this book series, you will see the words of the Buddha where he shares that he never declared whether you exist or don't exist after you attain enlightenment and die. 
But we know if you don't attain enlightenment, you will exist in this cycle of rebirth. So existing in the cycle of rebirth and having an existence outside of the cycle of rebirth are two completely different things. And there's various reasons why I can speculate why the Buddha didn't share if there's anything after death for an enlightened being, but that would all be speculation. He potentially didn't share what was after enlightenment because an unenlightened mind already has such craving, desire, attachment that the mind is longing and yearning for things so much that there's a lot of work you have to do to eliminate that in the mind. If you knew that there was something after enlightenment, then that's just one more thing for the mind to eliminate this craving, desire, attachment. So if there is something after enlightenment, then sharing that could potentially inhibit somebody from actually attaining enlightenment because their mind would be longing for that experience. Another reason why he might not have shared what happens, if anything, after enlightenment is because maybe he didn't know and maybe it's because he never experienced it for himself. The Buddha was very wise in that he only taught things that he actually experienced. Because if he experienced it, then he knew it was the truth. And if he experienced it and could share that experience with you, then you could independently confirm that for yourself to know that it's truth. But because that particular life that he lived was the first and only time that he ever attained enlightenment because once you attain enlightenment, you're not going to be reborn. So having attained enlightenment in that life, he had never experienced what may or may not come after enlightenment. So therefore, he didn't have that experience, so therefore he didn't share it. So there's various reasons why the Buddha may not have shared anything that may or may not happen after enlightenment. But the fact is that it doesn't really matter if there is something or there isn't something after enlightenment. Because anybody who learns and practices the teachings that the Buddha did declare, and you train the mind to let go of any craving to understand what he didn't declare, once the mind moves into enlightenment, it's so peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy that you don't care about what may or may not happen after this life. Your mind isn't longing for the past. It's not longing for the future. It's firmly rooted in the present moment. So if an enlightened being experiencing peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, that's what an enlightened being is experiencing now in the present moment, their mind isn't longing to know what's next. And if there is anything that's next, I would imagine an enlightened being would know that it's either as good as what they're experiencing currently, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, or it's better. So there's no need to crave or long or have a desire to know what's next. Instead, what the mind needs to do is eliminate a desire or a longing to know any of the answers to any of these undeclared teachings because you're not going to get a chance to understand the answer to any of these questions. You have to let go of trying to know, is the world eternal? Is it going to last forever? Is it not eternal? Is it finite? Is it infinite? Is the soul the same thing as the body? Is the soul one thing and the body is another thing? 
And then as an enlightened being, do we exist, not exist, both exist and does not exist, or neither exist or does not exist? Trying to understand what happens after enlightenment, that's just the mind longing and craving and yearning with a strong eagerness, and that's going to create discontentedness. So that needs to all be eliminated from the mind in order to get to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, where the mind has no fear, it doesn't even fear death, and whatever comes after this life, once the mind's enlightened, then so be it. That's just what happens, if there's anything at all. We don't have those teachings available, and if the mind continues to long for it, it will never experience the enlightened mental state. So the mind needs to get comfortable with not knowing the answer to any of these questions. Any questions on any of this? So, David, as interesting as these questions may be, if we are pulled into thinking about them too much, it's essentially a sign of our discontent, essentially. For some people, you're going to probably have a longing right now for the answer to some of these, especially if you've been taught in other communities that the world is eternal and the whole goal is to have this eternal life with God. If you've been taught that, your mind has been conditioned in a way that's going to hinder you from enlightenment. Because if you think that this world is eternal, that means you're not understanding the universal truth of impermanence and you're not understanding this undeclared teaching and the mind is longing for eternal life. So if you long for the answer to any of these questions, then your mind's going to be discontent. In fact, hearing me say right now that the Buddha didn't teach these and these aren't declared teachings and you're not going to get the answer to these things might raise some discontentedness in some minds of some practitioners. That's an indication that there's craving, desire, attachment there. And it's causing your mind to be discontent. And that's exactly why the mind has to be trained to let go of this. Because if you hold on to wanting to know the answer to these things, it's going to create discontentedness in the mind. So you would say even philosophical speculation on these matters can be signs of an attachment and lead one to discontent, essentially? You know, there's curiosity in knowing certain things, and then there's a mental longing with a strong eagerness to know certain things. That mental longing and strong eagerness is what's going to cause the discontentedness. That's the craving, desire, attachment. A curiosity to know these things is a curiosity to know them, but you have to even let that go because there's no way for anybody to give you independently verifiable evidence of any of the answers to all of these. If somebody said the world is eternal, okay, how can you prove that? There's no way to prove it. If somebody says the world is not eternal, okay, well, how can you prove that? And all these other answers about the soul is the same thing as the body. Well, how can we prove that there is a soul? Has anybody ever seen a soul? Has anybody ever touched a soul? Do you have evidence that you can give to somebody else to independently allow them to confirm these answers? And the answer to that question is no, there's no independent, irrefutable evidence to prove any of the answers to any of these questions. So 
if you keep longing for it and you keep pursuing the answer to these, then the mind is going to just create discontentedness. And it's better to just realize that these are undeclared. You're never going to get an answer to any of these right now in this life and just work on learning the declared teachings that lead to enlightenment. And then once the mind becomes enlightened, if there is some kind of afterlife after enlightenment, then you'll discover it at that point. But what's important now is to discover enlightenment in this life where the mind's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. But you won't be able to accomplish that if the mind's longing for an answer to any of these questions. Thank you, David. I think any further questions would be best asked later. Okay. So let's talk about how I suggest you approach this whole topic of God based on some of the groundwork that I've laid. And we can talk about more of those things to flush them out further if you'd like. But to help you understand how to either have a relationship with God or not have a relationship with God, let me share with you how to do either of those two things while attaining liberation and enlightenment. What's important is that you establish right view. Right view is understanding those Four Noble Truths, that all unenlightened beings are going to experience discontentedness of mind. The cause of discontentedness in the mind is craving, desire, attachment. The mind having a mental longing with a strong eagerness for permanence when all conditioned things are impermanent. The mind is causing itself discontentedness. That's that second noble truth that helps you establish right view. Rather than blame our anger or hatred or our sadness or frustration or shame or guilt or boredom or loneliness on other people, it's all being caused by the mind itself. And the third noble truth is that we can eliminate that discontentedness by training the mind to eliminate craving, desire, attachment because it's craving, desire, attachment that's causing the discontentedness, all we need to do is train the mind to eliminate that craving, desire, attachments. Those longing with a strong eagerness will eliminate discontentedness from the mind. And the path to doing that is the fourth noble truth. The eightfold path is the way leading to the complete elimination of discontentedness. So the more you understand the four noble truths, and you practice it, you will establish right view that when things are happening in your life, it's all being experienced through the mind. You won't be blaming other people or other situations. You will know that everything that you're experiencing in this life is based on your own decisions, not God, but your own decisions. And you need to firmly, deeply understand that and see that as truth and practice that on a daily basis. And this will help you to establish right view, which is required whether you decide to have a relationship with God or whether you choose to not have a relationship with God. You need to establish right view. That's the first step on the Eightfold Path. In terms of having a relationship with God, the mind needs to eliminate any craving, desire, attachment related to God. When we're taught in certain communities to pray, we're oftentimes taught to ask God for things, almost like a genie in a bottle. You know, can I please have more money? Can I have a bigger house? Can you heal my relative who's sick and ill? 
can you not allow my relative to die right there's all these requests that were typically taught in various communities that through prayer if we pray these things to god that god's going to grant that wish this is treating god like a genie in a bottle which isn't the truth and oftentimes what can happen is if you've been taught this way that if you pray and god's going to grant your wish if god doesn't grant your wish then oftentimes people turn their back on god and think that god doesn't exist well that's not necessarily the truth it's just that you've been taught in a way that isn't the truth if you've been taught that god is a genie in a bottle and that anything you pray god is going to answer that prayer when god doesn't answer your prayer you might get mad or angry or irritated or frustrated at god that's because of the craving desire attachment that you have to getting these things and acquiring these things from god and if you've had people who've died in your life and you believe that it's god who decides who lives and dies you might get angry or irritated or frustrated at god thinking that he's the one who took your relative from you when in fact that wasn't the case at all the only reason why people die is because they were born they're impermanent god didn't kill that person god didn't bring that person to heaven that god didn't take that person from you it's just that this person died because they were born so if we are interested in maintaining a relationship with god while attaining liberation and enlightenment in your prayer you're going to need to stop treating god like a genie in a bottle if that's what you currently have been taught to do you need to eliminate any craving desire attachment for all these things and asking god for all these things in prayer what your prayer might become is your prayer might become to let god know that you believe in him or however you refer to this being god that you're open to his guidance and give him thanks for being part of your life these are really the only things that really need to show up in prayer because if you ask for a bunch of things that's just your craving desire attachment you're not practicing right view you don't understand if you're asking god for a whole bunch of things and for him to give you a whole bunch of things then you're not understanding the natural law of gamma that everything that happens in your life is because of cause and effect or action and result god doesn't just poof and give you something and this is something you can independently verify for yourself you don't have to believe what i'm saying if you say a prayer right now god please give me x y and z did he give it to you is it there no so you don't have to believe what i'm sharing with you that god isn't a genie in a bottle you can see the truth for yourself by doing a prayer asking god for something and then see if it arrives and if it doesn't arrive then you have the truth for yourself that god isn't a genie in a bottle and that through prayer you can't make requests to god and acquire some beneficial thing in this life everything that happens in this life is through the natural law of gamma of cause and effect so if you're going to pray then you might decide that you would like to let god know that you believe because he does like that and know that people believe in him you can let him know that you're open to his guidance because 
there are certain things that he will be able to share with you along this path and you might decide to give him thanks for being part of your life but don't rely on this guidance don't ask for this guidance don't uh, request this guidance don't tell him that he needs to give you guidance don't think that something that's happening in your life oh that's god giving me guidance don't think like that because you have to be a wise practitioner who is always making the choices for yourself that god's not making these choices you're making the choices for yourself but if you do pray and you choose to share these three things in your prayer in some way form or fashion then that would be better than being in prayer and constantly asking for things like a genie in a bottle because that would be craving desire attachment and it would inhibit you from attaining enlightenment and you wouldn't be practicing right view you need to eliminate any craving desire attachment to being with god in heaven if you've been taught this way that the goal of this life is to perform a whole bunch of things that pleases god and then at the end of this life there's a judgment and God's either going to judge you and bring you into heaven or make you go to hell, this isn't the truth. God doesn't make those decisions. It's through the cycle of rebirth in your own decisions. It's through the natural law of gamma that decides whether you are going to be reborn and if you are going to be reborn in what realm. God isn't judging us to determine where we belong, right? If you're reborn in heaven, then that's not a permanent destination. You can actually be reborn from heaven into other realms, or you can attain enlightenment from the heavenly realm. But if you have a craving desire attachment to exist with God in heaven, then there's still craving desire attachment there. In order to get into the enlightened mental state, you have to eliminate all 10 fetters. And one of those fetters is a desire for form which is a desire to be reborn in one of the form realms which is animal and human and you have to eliminate the desire to be reborn in one of the formless realms which is hell afflicted spirit and heavenly realm so if you still have a craving desire attachment to be reborn in heaven and be with god then the mind is still attached to god and you're going to experience discontentedness as a result. So you have to eliminate all craving, desire, attachment to God, that you can't look at God as being the one who is going to determine your life for you and punish you and reward you, give you good things, take away things from you. All the things that you're experiencing in this life is based on this natural law of gamma then as you progress, you need to understand this natural law of gamma very, very clearly because it's this cause and effect or action and result that is producing certain benefits or certain unwholesome things in your life. It's not God. So if we kill and we have hatred because of the killing that we're doing, that hatred is becoming stronger and stronger and we treat people around us in a hateful way, then that's what we're going to experience is a lot of hate in our life. Or if we're stealing or having sexual misconduct or we're lying or taking substances that cause heedlessness, our life is going to be impacted by these decisions that we're making. This isn't God that's controlling us to do these things. 
these are our decisions that we're making and we will experience the results. And then conversely, if we do wholesome things, if we practice right view, if we practice right intention, which part of that is the interest of practicing harmlessness, if we practice things like right speech, those five factors of well-spoken speech, then what we'll notice is the people around us will have better relationships with us, that we will experience improved opportunities in this world with our children, with our life partners, with our coworkers, with our family, with our neighbors. If we go out into the world and we're a hateful person and we speak harshly and argumentatively, then that's what we're gonna experience coming back to us. But if we speak with these five factors of well-spoken speech and all the other factors of the path, then we will experience beneficial results in this life right now. So you need to be able to see that everything that's happening in this life is as a result of the natural law of gamma. And you can see that for yourself. The more that you reflect on conversations that you've had in the past that went really, really well, you can see that, yeah, you were practicing the five factors of well-spoken speech, maybe before you even knew what they were. And in conversations that went not well and ended in an unwholesome way, then you can see that you weren't practicing the five factors of well-spoken speech. So you can see the truth for yourself as more and more of these teachings of the Buddha that you learn and you independently verify the truth for yourself through your practice, you can see this natural law of gamma is true and real and it's affecting us on a daily basis based on our wholesome decisions and based on our unwholesome decisions. It's not God that's doing anything to us. It's our own decisions that are creating either wholesome results or unwholesome results. We need to ensure that if you've been taught to fear God for any reason, in some communities, people are taught to fear God, that and if you do something, if you sin or you break a commandment or you do this, that, or the other thing, that you should fear the wrath of God and that you're going to essentially be punished either in this life or once you die, you're going to be judged and punished in hell for eternity. This isn't the teaching of what would lead to enlightenment. This isn't how God functions, that if you have any understanding of God whatsoever, this God is a very loving God, unconditional love. He's not interested in people fearing him, right? Any kind of fear is going to produce problems in your life, even if you fear God. So you need to not fear anything from God because he's not doing anything to you. It's the natural law of gamma that's always at play here. It's your own decisions that are leading to certain results. If there was punishments from God that were being doled out, you know, if you did something unwholesome, which I'm sure we've all done things unwholesome in our life, then wouldn't you get like some lightning bolt strike you? Or, you know, wouldn't you like drop dead in that instant as soon as you did something bad? That's what you would see if God was controlling you like a robot. And if he was this domineering God that you needed to fear. But that's not what any of us are experiencing or have experienced in the past. So you can see the truth for yourself that God is not domineering. God is not controlling us. God is not attempting to get us to fear him 
and trying to fear us into practicing wholesome teachings. Instead, God is kind of like a parent there that is essentially practicing these teachings as a practitioner of these teachings, not being attached to us, right? If you had a child that kept moving towards the hot stove and wanting to touch the hot stove, you would be restraining them and restraining them and restraining them and trying to teach them not to touch the hot stove. And you would keep doing this over and over and over again. Well, eventually, it's helpful to just let the child get close to the stove, feel the heat, gain that wisdom that the stove is hot, and this isn't something that you should touch. Because if, as parents, we kept restraining, restraining, restraining our child and just talking to them, they don't quite gain the wisdom as if they actually come close to the stove and feel the heat themselves in gaining that wisdom. So God, in my view, is a practitioner of these teachings and understands these teachings very, very clearly because he would be only interested in seeing all beings live in harmony. He'd be interested in seeing all beings attain enlightenment, right? This is essentially like heaven on earth if all beings attain enlightenment. He's not responsible for restraining us, right? We're here to gain this wisdom, and it's through that wisdom that we will make wise free will choices, free will decisions, right? God's not controlling us like a robot and attempting to force us to do one thing or the other. Instead, he's providing us this environment. There's this world that we have, and now it's up to us to work our way through this cycle of rebirth and gain the wisdom that we need to lead to liberation. And he's not going to be constantly controlling what's going on in this world because he's unattached to the outcome. So some people will oftentimes turn their back on God because if they see a child with cancer or they see people get murdered or they see things happening in the world, if the mind believes that God is the cause of all of these things, then they must think that God is just a horrible being. You know, some people say that God caused COVID, for example. People who view that as punishment and fear, you know, it elicits fear in the mind, then they must just have a really horrible outlook on this God. But that's not what God's doing. All of these experiences that we're having, whether they're wholesome or unwholesome, are based on our own decisions. God is unattached to us. He would like to see us live in harmony, but it's our own choices of whether we do that or not. And in order for us to gain wisdom, we have to get close to that stove and feel the heat. And one of the things that we've experienced in this world is we've experienced a lot of anger, a lot of hatred, a lot of ill will, a lot of problems in this world. These things aren't being caused by God. They're being caused by us as human beings. But because we're causing all of these problems, we can also eliminate them as well. That's what we learn in the Four Noble Truths about our own mind, but that also relates to everything that's going on in the world as well. Since we're experiencing all of these problems in the world of murders and robberies and rapes and you know drug abuse and poverty and famine and all of these different things that are happening around the world, this is all because of our choices as human beings. So we can improve that, but God's not orchestrating this. It's not his 
role to control the world and make all these bad things happen. And it's also not his responsibility to improve the world and make all these good things happen. That's our responsibility. That's part of practicing right view. So if you're going to have a relationship with God, you need to understand that he's interested in us living in harmony and he's not going to restrain you, that it's your own decisions that are leading to any results that you experience. Now, if you're interested in not having a relationship with God, that's completely fine too, because the way that this path works to liberation of the mind is that it's not based on God. God is not granting enlightenment. God is not attached to us. He has unconditional love. There's no condition that you have to believe in God in order to attain enlightenment, right? And there's no condition that if you don't have a belief in God or you don't have a relationship with God, you won't attain enlightenment. There's no teaching like that. You won't be hindered in any way. So for some people, they would rather just take the whole God thing and set it to the side and just focus on their own training, their own wisdom, their own practice of these teachings, and that will help you to lead to liberation. You can attain enlightenment in that way because everything with this enlightened mind is based on your own decisions. So if you choose to have no relationship with God whatsoever, you can progress on this path to enlightenment. And if you choose to have a relationship with God, you're going to need to deeply understand each one of these points that I share in class today and that I detail in the book in volume one in chapter 18. You're going to need to practice this very closely and undo any conditioning that has maybe existed in the mind based on past experiences that you've had. Ultimately, what you'd like to get to, whether you decide to have a relationship with God or not have a relationship with God, is you'd like to get to the point where you have loving kindness for all beings. Because in order to attain enlightenment, you're going to need to cultivate loving kindness and compassion for all beings. doesn't mean you need to have a relationship with God, but you at least need to not feel anger or hatred or ill will or frustration or annoyance. Some people just hearing the word God can produce certain discontented feelings in the mind. And if that's the case, then that means you still are holding on to some conditioning related to God that you're going to need to train the mind to let go of in order to attain enlightenment. If your mind is experiencing any kind of discontentedness whatsoever related to the topic of God, you're going to need to train the mind to identify what those craving desire attachments are and then work to eliminate them and practice this loving kindness for all beings, which is part of Gautama Buddha's teachings. Loving kindness for all beings. God is another being in this whole cycle of rebirth. He's a supreme being. He has extreme amount of knowledge, an extreme amount of power, but he doesn't wield that in harmful ways. He's not doing those kind of things, even if that's what you've been taught in the past. So you're going to need to cultivate this in the mind, even if you choose to not have a relationship with God. If you're finding yourself irritated or frustrated or annoyed about the topic of God, then 
what you will potentially decide to do is include God as one of the rings in your loving kindness meditation. It doesn't mean you believe he exists by including him in your loving kindness meditation, but in the mind somewhere, if there's any anger or hatred or ill will towards this being who you may not even think exists, then you're going to need to cultivate this active goodwill, this genuine interest for all beings to be well, so that you can liberate the mind from harboring any kind of negative feelings towards this being. Because if you did every other thing on this path to enlightenment, you accomplished every other thing on this path to enlightenment, but the mind still is harboring this ill will towards this being God, well, your mind might be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in all these different situations. But as soon as you hear the word God, or somebody talks about God, or you see a community of people who are interested in God, your mind's going to become discontent there. So it's not permanently experiencing the enlightened mental state that's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because it's still harboring some kind of craving, desire, attachment related to this topic of God. And you've got to eliminate that and eradicate that from the mind, whether you're going to maintain a relationship with God or not. And that will move the mind into this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, having addressed all the other aspects of this path. This is just one more thing that the mind needs to make sure that you address as part of your practice. So that's everything that I was planning to share with you guys today. I'll just open up to any questions that you guys have related to what I've shared or related to anything that you've learned in the past that you'd like to talk about and discuss and maybe help you to understand. The way that you ask questions is you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom in the comment section, or you can raise your hand electronically and our moderators will be sure that you get called on to ask your question directly or as a follow-up question. So I'll just turn the class over to you guys and see what questions you have about today's topic. Hi, David. It seems that oftentimes God is portrayed as outside of existence and beyond the laws of existence, but it seems that what's very important about what you're sharing is that the teachings that we learn each week all apply to our understanding of and relationship with God, that God is not beyond the teachings, but simply a part of, would you say? Yes, that's exactly what I'm sharing, is that this is another being that is part of this whole cycle of rebirth, and he has deep, amazing amount of wisdom. Whether you choose to have a relationship with him or not is up to you. It's just like your neighbor uh, next door. You choose to have a relationship with them or not, or any other person or any other being in this world. You're either choosing to have a relationship with them or not, and God is just another one of those beings that you can either choose to have a relationship with or not. I was wondering, is there any advantage or disadvantage toward having a belief in God when we're on the path? From my experience, when I understood of God's existence and deeply understood that and observed the truth for myself that God does exist, I was then able to open up to any kind of guidance or wisdom that God might be interested to share. And I experienced multiple situations where he provided wisdom that helped me on this path. 
And if I didn't have a relationship with him, I wouldn't have gotten that wisdom, I don't think. So through having a relationship with God, I feel that it does provide you another avenue, just like another friend, kind of an elderly grandfather, if you want to think of it, or a grandmother or something like that, to provide you wisdom along this path. But you've always got to make sure that you realize that it's your decisions that are going to lead to some result. So there were multiple situations where God showed me miracles that I could easily observe that this was God's presence that was proving to me in my own independent way that is just for me and only me because I can't share that with somebody else to prove that God exists. But when he showed me multiple ways of his existence, then as I modified the way that I had this relationship with him based on the Buddhist teachings of non-attachment and non-craving and not having fear and all the other things that I shared, what I noticed is that there was this kind of wisdom that was coming through the mind in certain situations that was not from me and it wasn't from anyone here in this human realm. And that wisdom, ultimately, I still approached it as I need to prove for myself that this is true. I didn't just say, oh, okay, here's this wisdom from God. I'm just going to do it blindly. But I still used that wisdom and treated it just like I had read it in a book somewhere and said, okay, let me independently confirm whether this is the truth or not. And this wisdom, ultimately, on multiple occasions, ended up helping me along the path. I never received wisdom when I asked for it. And that's how I know you can't ask God for things. It was only offered to me at times where my mind wasn't craving it. And at times where I guess God felt like it was important to share this wisdom with me. And because I have this relationship with God, he was able to come into my life and able to help me to understand this path much more clearly than if I was just doing it on my own. Would you say that moving toward enlightenment potentially facilitates our understanding of and relationship with God? Yes. If the mind is heavily defiled, then the wisdom of God isn't going to make its way through to you. So in times in my life where I was drinking alcohol and using drugs and doing other really harmful things in the world, doesn't matter what God did or didn't do, the mind isn't really going to observe and acknowledge and be aware that this is God who's sharing this wisdom and you're not going to make wise decisions because when God shares wisdom with you, it's still up to you what direction you choose, either wholesome or unwholesome. And if you choose the unwholesome route, he's not going to punish you. And if you choose the wholesome route, he's not going to reward you. It's your own decision that's leading to some kind of result. So when the mind's heavily defiled and you're closed down, then this wisdom can't really get through to you. But as you train the mind through meditation, as you train the mind through the Four Noble Truths, as you train the mind through the whole Eightfold Path, if you choose to have a relationship with God, at some point you may start noticing that this wisdom from God is coming through to you more and more vibrantly, more and more profoundly, 
because you're cleaning out all this pollution and God now has the ability to communicate with you in ways that didn't exist at other times in your life when there was pollution and a lot of pollution in your mind. So you may notice the more you walk on this path, the more awakened the mind becomes, the more ability God has to communicate with you and for you to understand that communication as it relates to the path to enlightenment. On the topic of God, we have a question on YouTube from IA. How do today's views on God, such as being portrayed through the Bible, affect our understanding of his existence? I think that there's certain aspects of the Bible that don't quite explain God in a way that would be helpful for anybody who's on this path to enlightenment. We need to remember that the Bible was written down by people after Jesus died. It wasn't written by Jesus himself. We also need to remember that Jesus only taught for a very limited amount of time. It was only like one to three years before they actually killed him. So he didn't really have a whole lot of time to impart his wisdom with the people who ultimately ended up writing the Bible and writing those books. So what you see in the Bible is not 100% truth about God and even about Jesus, because we know that these people who wrote the Bible, they weren't Jesus and they didn't have a whole lot of time to learn from Jesus throughout his whole life because he was killed so quickly. We also know that due to the universal truth of impermanence, that the Bible has been changed over multiple years, over 2000 years of impermanence now. So what we see in the Bible is not 100% truth. I don't consider the Bible to be the word of God. It's the recollections of a whole bunch of people who were around Jesus and kind of got a little bit of information and wisdom from Jesus. And it's what we have left after all of this impermanence. But for someone who declares that the Bible is the word of God, we have no way of having any confidence that that is 100% God's word because God didn't write it. Jesus didn't write it. It's been through a whole bunch of impermanence. And the people who did write it only learned for a very limited time with Jesus Christ. So this would be like, you know, James, Basel, Manal, some of you others, you guys have been learning for about a year or so. All right, go write a book about everything that I've ever taught you, right? You wouldn't be able to do that and communicate it in a way that would deeply communicate what I've shared in these classes. Even as much time as you guys have spent, you wouldn't be able to formulate that. So the same thing, Daniel, Mark, Luke, John, all of these people in the Bible, they weren't able to communicate what is true reality because they didn't understand true reality themselves. So that's why in the Bible, we have things where it talks about fearing God and that we should all fear God. Well, the person who wrote that feared God, but that doesn't mean God wants you to fear him, or that doesn't mean it would be beneficial for you to fear him, but that's what that person wrote and they must have feared God in order to have written that. Or people who write in the Bible that we should pray to God and anything that we pray for, God will give us and will grant our wish. Well, the person who wrote that believes that, but that doesn't mean that's the truth. And we know that's not the truth because when we practice what that says in the Bible and we pray to God and do we get what we want? The answer is no. 
So it's not that God doesn't exist. It's that the person who wrote that down didn't understand the truth. And as long as someone considers the Bible to be the truth and they practice what's in there, when those things don't happen, then somebody might turn their back on the Bible or turn their back on God and think that God doesn't exist because what the Bible says isn't the truth. Well, it's not that this entity or this being of God doesn't exist. It's that the Bible was written down and has been changed over multiple years that it doesn't reflect 100% of the truth. And I don't know the Quran, but the Quran is another place where God is oftentimes talked about a lot. And there's most likely things in there as well that aren't 100% truth about God. And because of that, there's, in my view, a lot of misunderstanding about this being God. And what I'm sharing is from my experience and my perspective of how to attain enlightenment while either maintaining your relationship with God or by not having a relationship at all. Thank you, David. Let's go to Manal next for a question. Hi, teacher David. So on your point about um, recognizing defilements or pollution, how would you clearly see if the mind's non-existent relationship with God is because of defilements or pollution, or is it um, because the mind is just um, diligently training to further in the path and recognizing that investigation and practice of the teaching is what will ultimately eradicate unknowing of true reality? Yeah, the more that you investigate the Buddha's teachings and the teachings that I share, that's what's going to lead to liberation. If you decided to set the whole God thing to the side and only focus on the core teachings, then that could give you a really clear path to attaining enlightenment. And I'm here to guide you. You're here to independently verify what I'm sharing is the truth. And you can progress in that way. But if you decide to have a relationship with God and that's something that you value and see as important, this is the way that you would do that. If there's any discontentedness related to either side of this, and there probably is, then you know there's craving, desire, attachment there in the mind. And through all the other teachings that I've shared so far in this program about how to eradicate craving, anger, and ignorance with craving, eradicating it with breathing mindfulness meditation, with generosity, with using discontentedness as the red light on the dashboard, identifying those craving desire attachments and then actively putting a plan in place to eliminate them that is how you eliminate craving desire attachments whether it's in relationship to god or anything else and then with anger practicing loving kindness meditation and practicing loving kindness in daily life and then with this ignorance or unknowing of true reality focusing on independently verifying the truth to acquire wisdom and when you focus on that, that wisdom is what's going to antidote or remedy the ignorance and unravel this whole massive amount of discontentedness that the mind experiences in the unenlightened state and help you experience more and more of this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. And as you do, that's the indication that you're on the right path. You don't need to go around <clears throat> looking for signs of God or is God with me today or is he not with me today? 
All you need to do is look at your own mind and the clarity of your own mind. And by learning and practicing these teachings more and more, you will see that the clarity and crispness, the peacefulness, the calmness, the joy in the mind just continues to increase. And sure, you're going to take backward steps and go forward and backwards and go forward. But ultimately, the mind over time is getting more and more enlightened or awakened. And you can see that truth for yourself. You don't need God to tell you anything or give you any signs necessarily. But as your mind does awaken, don't be surprised if those things do happen. Right. I do uh, think from uh, for since childhood that a sense of God is omnipresent and a very universal um, sort of entity. And I've never had a relationship with God. You mentioned that there could be heavy defilements or pollution of the mind and that therefore inhibiting you from having a close relationship with God. Um, have I understood that correctly? That uh, that may be the reason why? Because I've, I've never had the affinity. I've had the, um, you know, this universal sort of love and respect for any God, but I haven't had an affinity towards a God you know, the meaning behind a God. So my question is more, would that be indicative of having some defilements and pollution that are there that are unrecognized? Not necessarily. What I was sharing there is that James had asked me the question about, you know, this guidance from God that is potentially able to be experienced. A person whose mind is defiled and heavily polluted isn't going to be able to benefit from that because they're not going to acknowledge or even observe that that's what that wisdom is coming to you. You're talking about something slightly different, which is you've just never really, it sounds like maybe pursued a relationship with God or maybe even known how to do that. That isn't necessarily as a result of defilement. It's just a result of maybe your experiences in life. And as you said, you've always kind of had this respect, but you just maybe haven't known how to maybe have a relationship with God. If that's something that you were interested in doing at any point, you wouldn't need to have a relationship with God to attain enlightenment. But if you do have that interest, then this is the way that you would do that. But the pollution that exists in all unenlightened minds isn't what's inhibiting someone from deciding to have a relationship with God because some people's mind can be heavily defiled and they're at the same time highly attached and craving and longing the a relationship with God, but just their mind is so defiled that they don't even understand how to do that. They're just doing it based on the conditioning of what's been taught to them within their community. And then there's people whose minds are very, very clear and very, very much understanding wisdom who just have no interest in a relationship with God and they're just looking at the wisdom and how to further train their mind to eliminate any kind of pollution in the mind. So the pollution of the mind isn't connected with whether one chooses to have a relationship or not. Thank you. That, that does clear it up. Donnie has his hand raised, so let's go to him next. Uh, I just need to seek a clarification. Um, from my understanding, I think uh, to me, Buddhism is not considered a religion. 
because we are studying the teachings of Buddha uh, that will guide us towards enlightenment. And a religion to me is more like um, having a, uh, a God, which is only potence, which say, uh, I created this world. Uh, and there are some so called rules that we should follow. If you follow it, you have some reward, it won't be punished. Uh, is that considered as a, the right view of things? You could maybe think of it that way. I also don't think of Gautama Buddha's teachings as a religion. I don't even think about other traditions as necessarily a religion. When I think about religion, I think of rites, rituals, ceremonies, worship, kind of people who took in the teachings of some original teacher, and then they're going to put rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship as part of that, and then there's going to be a centralized organization who disseminates these teachings and tries to convince other people to practice them in order to lead to some beneficial result. That's what I think about when I think about religion. There's certainly some people who might choose to practice Gautama Buddha's teachings as a religion, and they might look at it as rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. There are certainly people that are doing that with Gautama Buddha's teachings, but that wasn't his original way of sharing his teachings. And just because God is part of a particular set of teachings isn't what makes it a religion or not a religion, right? With certain traditions, I, I usually refer to them as traditions, you know, there can be a presence of God in those traditions. To me, if people are practicing as rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, there's a centralized organization that's disseminating these teachings and trying to convince people to practice those teachings or believe in those teachings, then to me, that's a religion. But what I share in all the resources that I provide, I don't consider it a religion. I consider it a better way of life. And this better way of life that I'm sharing is clearing up this whole understanding of God is that if the mind holds on to thinking that God is controlling the world or controlling you or you should fear God or any of these other things that we talked about today, if those things are in the mind, then you're not going to be able to experience this better way of life because it's not liberated. It's not free as it relates to this topic of God. So we can understand this being of God while still not practicing these teachings as a religion, instead practicing it as a better way of life. Thanks, David. You're welcome. We have a question now on YouTube, also about God from Sean D. If God is everything, the before, the now, the always, God is also the devil, yes? I don't share teachings along the lines of what you just shared, that God is everything, always, that God's the devil, all of those things. I don't share that. I have a feeling you might not have been in the class from the beginning when I walked through my understanding of God and how to practice these teachings of the Buddha in relationship to God, because God is an independent being. And the devil, or what you're referring to as the devil, in Gautama Buddha's teachings, we refer to that being as Mara. And that being of Mara is a completely separate being from God. They're not the same thing. And that first part of the question where you said God is everything, always one, I don't agree with that because uh, while God is everywhere and God can be everywhere and God has this 
all-knowing, all-powerful energy. We are our own being, and God is God's own being. So this being of Mara or devil or the Satan or whatever you want to refer to him, that's not God. That's a completely separate being. I thought I would turn the topic to free will now, David. Because mm-hmm. many of us, we look at the world and we see what seems to be events happening through causes and conditions, whether those causes and conditions are physical, biological, or related to societal conditioning. And I was wondering if you can explain where free will can fit into this, essentially. Yeah, so everything that happens in this world is all based on free will. God can produce miracles, but that's God's free will. That's his free will that's doing that. When Jesus performed miracles, it wasn't actually Jesus performing the miracles. It was God performing the miracles. God's not going to give the power of performing miracles to a human being, even someone like Jesus Christ, because that kind of power, wielding that kind of power, is dangerous for a human being to have. So anything that happens, including miracles, is all based on free will whether where we live, where we work, the relationships that we're involved in, everything that transpires in this world, COVID coming into the human realm and being part of human beings, how well a particular country addresses COVID versus another, all of these things that we experience in the world is all based on our own free will choices. We may even, as I talked about, may end up getting a certain amount of wisdom from God on this path if you are open to that and you choose to have that relationship. But still, it comes down to your free will of you choosing what you should and shouldn't do on a moment-by-moment basis. There's no one and there's no being that is controlling you of what you should or shouldn't do. It's not possible for another human being to control your intentions, your speech, and your actions. Now, if the mind is unliberated, the mind is unenlightened, your mind is defiled and somebody else might say something and your mind gets angry or frustrated or you might throw something across the room, but that's not from that person. That person didn't force you to do that your mind produced that action of throwing something across the room. And it's all your free will that's choosing to do these things. That's why when someone decides to murder someone, the human being goes to jail. God didn't do that. The devil didn't do that. You did that, right? So this being Mara, since that is what was brought up, that being Mara, just like God is there to influence wholesome activity, but it's still your free will choice, Mara or the devil or Satan or whoever you want to call that being, they're there trying to influence unwholesome activity. But ultimately, it's your decision of what you choose to do on any moment by moment basis. That's your free will. So everything is as a result of your free will. If you think otherwise, then essentially you're a robot and everybody's controlling you and that's just not true. Instead, it's your own decisions that are leading to any particular results. And that's why the more you understand this wisdom of the Buddha about this natural law of gamma, the more you understand that through that wisdom, 
you can make wiser and wiser choices that lead to more and more wholesome decisions that lead to more and more wholesome results. So because you have free will, that's the whole reason why you can attain enlightenment in this life because you have the ability to acquire this wisdom and you have the ability to improve the decisions in your life. We have complete free will to do that. I was wondering if there's any semblance of degrees of free will. I'm asking this because you hear about people that are said to have genetic predispositions to alcoholism or to violent behavior. And I was just wondering how that fits in the free will as well. The way that I see those things is that's conditioning of the mind. So if you've had a parent who was an alcoholic or some member in your family, and then there's another person in your family who's also an alcoholic, well, it's not that that was passed down in your genes, like your brain or your body is somehow programmed to be an alcoholic. It's that your mind grew up observing your uncle or your grandfather, your grandmother or your mom or your dad using substances that cause heedlessness. And you see that as a decision that is potentially helpful. And your mind was conditioned that that's how you handle things. So in your home or in your environment, people weren't practicing wisdom to solve their problems. Instead, they were reverting to substances that cause heedlessness. So it's not that you have a predisposition to substances or a predisposition to anger or hatred. It's that your mind has been conditioned to think this way, that that's the way that you should live life. You're lacking wisdom of how to live a better life because that wisdom just hasn't existed in your family. Now what you're doing by learning and practicing these teachings is you're breaking the cycle because you and your family have been part of this whole cycle of rebirth for so long and your mind's been conditioned in a certain way to think and believe in a certain way. And now you're saying, hold on a second, I'm going to put the brakes on this discontentedness. I'm going to put the brakes on solving problems through arguing and yelling and screaming and throwing things and and drinking alcohol and taking other substances that cause heedlessness. I'm going to put the brakes on all this and discover the truth for myself. And when you do, and you gradually start gaining this wisdom and improving your life practice, now your life partner, your children, your grandchildren, they're all going to be learning from you. And they're going to now gain this wisdom to come up in the world and make wiser and wiser choices. So you might be viewed as the person who brought these teachings into your family, which ultimately helped everybody to eliminate this whole cycle of rebirth. But without this wisdom, you wouldn't be able to do that. What's been happening without this wisdom is we've been experiencing this craving, anger, and ignorance, this pollution in our families. And it's been handed down from one family member to the next, to the next, to the next, that that's the way to conduct ourselves in the world. And that's our karma. But that's the result of our decisions because we were reborn into those families. But now you're in a position where you can make free will decisions to eradicate this craving, anger, and ignorance, gain this wisdom, and now create a whole amazing life for yourself and share this wisdom with others who choose to be interested in learning what the wisdom is that you're learning as part of 
these teachings, but there's nothing genetic that's being handed down from one person to the next that predisposes them to any of these behaviors that we look at as being unwholesome. It's the mind is being conditioned in a way to think that's how we're supposed to conduct ourselves as human beings. So when we socialize in our like species of human beings and we're around people who are using a lot of substances that cause heedlessness, then we're going to have a tendency to do that. When we're around people who are very angered and hateful and argumentative, we're going to have a tendency to do that because that's what's accepted in that socialization, in that pack. But that's why the Buddha encourages us to then have wholesome friends, wholesome companions, and wholesome comrades. Because if we associate with people that are into wholesome things, then we're going to socialize in that way and we're going to make wise decisions towards wholesome conduct and wholesome mental discipline because we have this wholesome relationships that are producing more and more wisdom in our life, that we see people handling challenges and difficulties in their life in a wholesome way. And the more that we're around a community of people like that, then we will develop those type of skills and that wisdom will then become what's in our mind to then be able to conduct our life in a way that leads to wholesome outcomes because of the wisdom that we're acquiring amongst a community of people who are into wholesome things. It seems that oftentimes before we're on the path, we're very much vulnerable and reactive to our causes and conditionings to the people around us, to simply the sea of activity around us in life. But would you say that it's being on the path and practicing the teachings that can really unlock our free will in the present moment and allow us in some sense to take control of our kama? Yeah, when you learn the Four Noble Truths and you do what the Buddha says is have the breakthrough where you truly deeply understand the Four Noble Truths and you can see without a shadow of a doubt that it's your own mind that's causing your own discontentedness and because of those decisions that you're making in your life that's creating the discontentedness, you also have that free will, that same free will to work your way out of that discontentedness. To me, that's liberating by itself. If we think that there's this domineering God that we need to fear and that's punishing us and that's rewarding us and giving us these rules to follow and we're going to be judged at the end of this life and we're going to either go to a good place or a bad place, those people are going to fear death a whole, whole lot, right? This is how when some people say that their ultimate goal is to go to heaven and be with God, if you ask them about fear of death, they're very afraid of death. Well, why? Well, because they don't know for a fact that they're going to be with God. They just believe it, right? They just believe, but they don't know the truth. So there's a lot of fear there. But when you understand that this being of God is not this domineering God that's not punishing and rewarding us, that's not judging us, that everything is based on our own free will, then you can have a wholesome relationship, if you like, with this being of God because you they're not trying to control you. And you understand that it's your free will that is producing wholesome results and unwholesome results. And that by itself, I think, is just so liberating that 
everything that you experience in this life is based on your own decisions. Absolutely, David. We have a couple of questions from Facebook now from Michael Johnson. Mm-hmm. On the subject of karma, a child getting cancer, is that karma from a past life? Are there some events that just can't be explained? Yes, anything that we experience is our gamma. And gamma itself isn't punishment and rewards, just like God isn't punishment and rewards. It's just cause and effect, or action and result, essentially the result of our own decisions. Anything that is happening with the physical body at the time of birth, that's results of our previous lives. So if we're born blind, for example, and we were born blind or deaf or we're born with some medical issue. That is based on our previous decisions in our previous lives because what's needed in order to create a birth is there needs to be an egg, a sperm, and a consciousness. And these three things come together and now it forms a new being in the womb of the mother. But that body that we inherit in the mother's womb, it's not based on our decisions in this life because we haven't made any decisions yet. It's just the consciousness that's come into that body. But the consciousness coming into that body is based on our previous decisions from our previous life. So if we're born with any medical issues, then it's from our decisions from our previous life. If a child gets cancer age one, two, three, four, five, six, something like this, they haven't made any decisions in this life that would lead to their cancer necessarily, unless their parents were living in a place that is disposed to cancer and in the environment or something like that. What's actually happened is they're still being affected from their previous decisions because when we kill, for example, and we've had lives where we've done a lot of killing, our life is going to be very short lifespan. This is why, like, for example, snakes and lions and tigers and things like this, they live for very short time frames, as opposed to things like elephants and turtles, right? Elephants and turtles live for really long periods of times because they don't kill animals. They don't typically kill other animals. They are eating vegetarian type food. So they have very long lifespans. Animals that have very long lifespans you will see that they don't kill. Uh, Where animals that do kill, they have very short lifespans. Human beings are the same thing because we're all being affected by this natural law of gamma, whether we know about this natural law of gamma or not, we're still being affected by it. Not as punishment and rewards, but just true reality, what's happening. So a child who ends up having a fatal illness, then this life is short for them because of things that they've done in their prior lives, not as a punishment, because they're still going to move through this cycle of rebirth. They're still going to be moving in all these different realms, and they will most likely come back to the human form again. And they may even in this human form, like say they die of cancer at the age of six, they may actually attain enlightenment at the time of death, right? So this cycle of rebirth isn't a punishment for us. It's just what we're experiencing, being stuck in this cycle of rebirth, and everything that's happening to us in this cycle of rebirth is as a result of our decisions. Whether it's sickness, illness, wealth, or poverty, anything that we experience is all based on these natural laws of existence. And the more you understand that, 
and you take away the whole punishment and reward thing, then you can get rid of that stress of carrying that burden of that fear and that punishment and the rewards. And you can just say, okay, what is going on here in this world? Let me understand these natural laws of existence. And now the more wisdom that I gain about them, I can make wiser and wiser choices and I can work my way out of this cycle of rebirth so that I no longer need to experience this discontentedness ever again. And I can stop this whole cycle and get to this peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy where the mind is fully enlightened and no longer experiencing discontentedness and no longer experiencing existence in any of these realms. It seems that most of us were conditioned based on God and judgment and guilt, whereas, and that affects our understanding of the law of karma, whereas, as you just explained, the law of karma is not about judgment, it's not about guilt, it's not about punishment, Mm -hmm. that is very liberating as well. Exactly. So this is where, you know, the vast majority of the world that's coming into Buddhist teachings now, because Buddhism is just growing around the world more and more, the people that are coming into these teachings are coming from places like Christianity and Muslim teachings and things like this. So any conditioning that you have around what you were taught about this world is going to move into these teachings. So that's why when I teach about the natural law of gamma, I make it very clear that it's not punishment and rewards because that's the way a lot of minds have been conditioned about everything that's happening in this world if you've been brought up in certain traditions that it's all about punishment and rewards and following a bunch of rules. So I make it very clear in all the teachings that I share that that's not what this is whatsoever. But practitioners' minds will oftentimes put that conditioning into the natural law of karma and think that it is punishment and rewards when it's not. It's just true reality of what is happening at any given time. You can see the cause and effect of how things happen in this world. And the more wisdom you have about this natural law, you'll make wiser and wiser choices. And you'll get to this point where you deeply understand this natural law and you can make very wise choices in your life, just like you did with the natural law of gravity, that at one time you didn't understand the natural law of gravity. You fell down, you bumped your head, you hit your elbows, you broke things. And it was very miserable to grow up not understanding the natural law of gravity. But eventually we all started to kind of understand it by the age of like 12, 14, 18. We're like, whoa, we pretty much got this one nailed. We can start traveling now. We can start roaming about the world and going different places and we don't fall down anymore. And life was very liberating for us as we kind of became liberated from this natural law of gravity. So the same thing is what you should be working on doing as part of the Buddhist teachings is everything he teaches is based on this natural law of gamma, of cause and effect, action, result, seeing the consequences of our decisions. And when you gain this wisdom and you can see the true reality and how you have this free will and that every decision you make has a certain result, then with this wisdom, you'll just make wiser and wiser choices and you'll be able to liberate the mind from the burden of all of this discontentedness. We have a question now from Anastasia. If I do not attain enlightenment in this life, and it means I will be reborn, then how can I verify I will be reborn? 
as your mind awakens, as you eliminate pollution from the mind and you're training the mind more and more, you may observe past lives. Some people do, some people don't. It's kind of like when the mind is more polluted, it's like just being on this street in a city and you look on this street and all you can see is this street because you can't see everything else around because the mind's kind of polluted. But as you train the mind more and more and you remove pollution from the mind, it's like relocating up to the top of a mountain. And now you can see how all the streets of this city interconnect and you can see how these cities connect through multiple cities and multiple cities connect. So some people observe their past lives and they can see it through that. Another way is something that I'm going to be sharing soon in another two weeks where I talk about the animal consciousness as it relates to the evolution of the human consciousness. This is chapter 20 in our book where I discuss about how you can see the animalistic attributes of the mind in this human existence of how they very much relate to an animal. So if you understand the problem of craving, anger, and ignorance, then you understand and can look at the animal world and you can see that craving, that desire, that longing, the right? Like, I want this food. I don't want to share. I don't want to be generous. I want all this food to myself. And then if anybody comes close as an animal, right? There's this hostility, this aggression. And why is all that happening? Because the animal is lacking wisdom. It doesn't understand that by you attacking this animal, other animals are going to attack you. Well, that's what's happening in the animal world. But even though we're in this human world and we're in this human existence, the mind of the unenlightened being functions very much like an animal. You have this craving desire attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness. The mind doesn't want to share. It wants to hoard. It wants to hold on to things very tightly, right? The mind wants to go around like an animal and have lots of sex with lots of different people. We steal just like animals steal. We kill, right? We do all these different things very much like an animal. And when somebody does something we don't like, we act like an animal. right? Hostility, aggression. We even have the phrase in our language, you're acting like an animal, right? Where do you think that comes from? Even though people may not understand the cycle of rebirth, we say you're acting like an animal because there is a certain degree of understanding in the subconscious of an unenlightened being about these kind of things. We even say you're fighting like cats and dogs, right? So even though we're in this human realm, in the unenlightened state, we very much function like an animal. And I'll be explaining more of this in two weeks, and you can see in the book in chapter 20. So there's these indications that you can see of the cycle of rebirth. Uh, You can see it. The more you understand the natural law of karma, and you understand the Buddhist teachings of what leads to rebirth in all the various realms, you look at these various realms, you look at your own life and your own mind, you can see the indications of the cycle of rebirth, and you may end up actually observing your previous lives as you progress on this path further and further. That will give you the ultimate truth to know that the cycle of rebirth is 100% truth. Thank you, David. This can certainly be a challenging and interesting topic. And thank you very much for breaking it down for us today. 
Yeah, you're welcome. This is a topic that I think is very helpful for anybody to learn because, you know, Gautama Buddha's life, he wasn't about proving or disproving God's existence, like I mentioned. He was here to deliver teachings that lead to liberation of the mind, to enlightenment. That's what he did. He stayed focused on that. But he still shared teachings to help people understand all these other beings and all these other realms. And God was one of those beings that he talked about. In fact, during his lifetime, people believed in many gods. So he wasn't there to either prove or disprove any of these. He just kept people focused on what do you need to do to actually liberate the mind. And here's some understanding about this being of God. And that's what I'm doing as well, saying through all the classes, all the resources that I share, here's the path to enlightenment. Here's how to liberate the mind. But because during this lifetime, the vast majority of the world who has been exposed to God believes in just one God, here's how you would practice in a way to liberate the mind to enlightenment with this understanding of God. And if you aren't interested in having that relationship, then like I've said, that's fine too. You can still walk this path without this relationship with God. And it is such a big thing to talk about because there's so many different views about God, so many different perspectives, so many different opinions. And there's not any kind of tangible way to prove or disprove God's existence. And all you can do is focus on understanding the truth. So if you understand what I share with you in this class about God isn't answering prayers like a genie in a bottle, that's something you can prove for yourself. You can see, you can pray and see if God is in fact giving you some wish and what your result is there. You have wisdom that no, God is not a genie in a bottle. You can see for yourself when you let go of fear and fear towards God. You can feel the mind being more peaceful and more liberated because of that. You can see for yourself that when you practice right view and you understand that it's your practice, that you're causing all the discontentedness and you can eliminate it. And when you see that truth for yourself, you don't have to believe what I'm saying. You can see it for yourself. The more you learn about the natural law of gamma and you improve your decision making, you can see the truth for yourself. So these type of things that I'm sharing in today's class are things that you can see the truth for for yourself in the same way that the Buddha shared as well. The Buddha's goal is for the entire world to attain enlightenment. And if people deeply understand his teachings and work towards enlightenment, you can see the world will gradually get better and better and better. And it doesn't have to be attached to God. Because God's not attached to us. He's letting us touch the hot stove. And that stove, for some people, is feeling hotter and hotter and hotter all the time with all the different things that are happening in the world. He's not controlling us. He's not forcing us to do one thing or the other. It's our choices. So just like we've got ourselves into this mess, we can get ourselves out of this mess. And it's the only thing that's going to get us out of this mess. Whereas if we've been taught that we should wait around for this savior who's going to come and save the entire world 
that's kind of like someone's going to come and click their fingers and instantly save everybody. So everybody who maybe thinks that way, they might start getting deeper and deeper into the darkness if they're kind of waiting for somebody else to solve these problems. But the Buddhist teachings focus us on we can improve our life right now, today. We don't have to sit around and wait for something to occur. We can actually take action. If this was the actual truth that somebody's going to show up and click their fingers and instantly improve the entire world, don't we think that would have happened by now? Don't we think that that would have happened the first time that that person was here? I don't recall ever a time that Jesus said that he was going to come back, click his fingers, and instantly save everybody. When Jesus came the first time, he shared teachings. And he shared teachings to help people live a better life. And when he comes the second time, when people understand Jesus Christ has come back, then he's going to have teachings that he's going to share for people to learn and improve their life, just like he did the first time. He's not going to click his fingers and everything changes for the world. Because as soon as he clicks his fingers, either him or God does that. The world's perfect. Okay, the world's perfect. Well, the world lacks the wisdom of how to make wholesome decisions. So in a matter of seconds, the world's going to get right back into all the problems again because we lack the wisdom. We didn't touch the stove and figure out that the stove's hot and we should no longer touch the stove. So this being of God, while he has amazing amount of power and amazing amount of knowledge, he's not wielding that in order to click his fingers and have all of us be perfect beings he's allowing us to touch the stove so that we can gain the wisdom ourselves. and when we gain that wisdom then we can truly create heaven on earth because now we have the wisdom of how to do that that's what a real parent actually does is helps their children to gain wisdom gradually and slowly and gives them the freedom to make all their decisions themselves so that they can live a very good life based on free will. So to me, that's what this being of God is doing for us, is providing us the wisdom and the opportunity to learn, but they're not going to control us and they're not going to punish us and reward us, but instead just have unconditional love and interest in seeing the world be harmonious together but if we choose to do that is our choice and that's where the buddhist teachings come in is the buddhist teachings show us how to make those wise choices to live a very wholesome life if we choose to do that so thank you all for joining today's class really pleased that we can share this topic with you and in our next class uh, next week on sunday we're going to be in chapter 19 which is the difficult human existence, sickness, aging, and death. This is where we're going to talk about the life of Gautama Buddha and how he basically lived during his life and what kind of brought about these teachings. I'm going to share a bit about the story of Gautama Buddha's life and this human existence that we experience, this sickness, aging, and death, because this is the primary questions that the Buddha was trying to understand during his lifetime. And as he discovered the answers to those questions, we can then use that wisdom to help us in this life. And then on Wednesday, 
we'll be doing breathing mindfulness meditation as part of our class. So you're welcome to join on Wednesday or Sunday for either of those two classes. And I'll just wish you all a very wonderful rest of your day. If you're in the USA, have a wonderful 4th of July, Independence Day, and uh, celebrate the freedom of your mind, liberating it to enlightenment. So have a wonderful rest of your day, and we'll see you in a future class. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.